Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Wes. I'm Skip, and we are very excited to have Larry Rosen joining us here today. Larry Rosen is the president of Edison Research, which he co-founded in 1994. Edison is best known as the company that performs exit polls for all United States elections for the National Election Pool, a consortium of ABC, CBS, CNN, Fox, NBC, and the Associated Press. Rosen has been a primary force in building the company into one of the world's most respected survey research companies with a particular specialization in media and election polling. He has presented Edison Research at the White House and on Capitol Hill. Before Edison, he was vice president at Bolton Research, a media consulting firm. Rosen is a graduate of Princeton University, where he majored in public and international affairs, and he received a master's in business from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for joining us, Larry. One of the questions we like to ask our guests is to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Um, could you share a moment with us? Well, the, the thing that springs immediately to mind would be starting my own business in 1994. Uh, I had been working for somebody else, and it got to the point where I did have to make a big decision about which direction I was going to go. Um, I'd always wanted to have my own business, and um, my wife is a doctor, and she was finishing her training, and so she was going from working 110 hours a week for $11,000 a year to continuing to work very hard but making at least a living wage, and so the timing seemed good. And so even though we had an 18-month-old son at the time, that's when I decided to jump out and go out on my own. And it's the best decision I ever made professionally, to be sure. Um, I think I was well cut out for entrepreneurship and starting my own business. I had built up a nice um, uh, reputation in certain areas such that uh, we got some immediate interest in clients so we didn't have to panic about uh, cash flow and, and things that a lot of startups have to. So, uh, I mean, when people ask about that, that was probably the single pivot point for me was leaving the company I was at and starting my own business, which is now a long, long time ago in 1994. Absolutely. And how, how did you get into polling as a field in general and, and before, just before Edison and, and, and going into Edison? I sort of stumbled into it. Um, I, uh, like lots of young people, uh, I finished school and I wasn't a hundred percent sure what I wanted to do. I dabbled briefly in the world of advertising and ad agencies, and the only part of what they did was that I found interesting was research. Uh, back then, it's not as common anymore, but back then, uh, the big ad firms had very robust research departments that were doing all kinds of cutting-edge things, and I found that really interesting. And then I got an MBA and continued to explore around and found marketing research really, really interesting. So I knew that's kind of what I wanted to focus on, upon uh, finishing my schooling, found a business uh, that hired me to do research and survey research, worked there for five and a half years. And uh, that's where the story just was, where I uh, decided to go out on my own, uh, where I felt I had built up enough of a track record and reputation such that, and even just knowledge base to know I could do it. Um, so that sort of connects the story back to that point. So I just wanted to pick up on that. Um, it sounded like you started with a lot of kind of advertising and general uh, opinion poll survey, uh, kind of not related to politics at the beginning. Do you see a big difference between applying those techniques to political polling versus advertising or market research, or is it more or less the same process? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, there's all kinds of different methods for data collection and, and research and analysis. And so on, you know, different needs take you in different directions in terms of the approach that you take. 
But as you asked the question, my main thought was really it's more similar than different. Um, it's the endeavor to understand people, what motivates them, what, uh, what, what their attitudes are about things, what their behaviors are when it comes to different things, and to sort of put all that information together and understand it. So I would say the, it's more similar than different. Uh, but that's a great question. I, I've not even thought about it that much. Huh? So uh, again, my knee-jerk reaction is actually it's much more similar than different. In what, in what ways is it similar? Um, can you just delineate those a little more specifically? Well, if you think of voting behavior as an example, it's not that much different from picking the toothpaste you prefer off the shelf or, um, or picking uh, any kind of uh, consumer product or uh, even choosing between um, Spotify and Apple Music or, or you pick your category. Uh, and increasingly now, voting is um, not always a binary choice. We think of it as just the, you know, the Republican or the Democrat, but in more and more cases, there's more than two choices. Uh, so it becomes a little, and in primary, sometimes there's many choices, things like that. So um, they're, they're just very similar in the sense of if you think of yourself standing in the voting booth, choosing among different options, it's how re different is that really from standing in the aisle at the drugstore, mm. choosing among all the different toothpastes, et cetera. And, I, and it may be the uh, import of such decisions at the grander level is quite different. But um, the the basis, the understanding, you know, what is motivating someone, what makes someone make choice A versus choice B, I'd say that's extremely similar, even though it's it seems uh, wrong to compare voting behavior to choosing a package good or something. But at the end of the day, it is about what drives that. And I mean, even if you look at s simple things like it's well known that people often latch onto a toothpaste brand and stick with it for their yeah. entire adult mm -hmm. lives. And, you know, a lot of voting behavior. Hey, uh, I come from a family of Democrats. I come from a family of Republicans. It's not necessarily more thought out as it's just what I've always done and always been. So there's and then what gets someone to change? What gets someone to change from Cresta Colgate? What, what gets someone to change mm -hmm. from choosing always choosing the Democrat just because to perhaps choosing a Republican or vice versa? You know, it, it all kind of boils down to very similar stuff. So even in an election year like 2016, where we have all these grand themes, um, you're, you make it sound like the decision is actually much more simple than that. So I was hoping you could maybe walk us through your 2016 election experience. It was a crazy year, um, obviously, for the polls. Um, if you could just maybe give us a, a brief version of the events of 2016 for you. Well, obviously, I could talk for hours just on that topic. Um, with regard to polls, we're kind of fortunate. We, we don't do pre-election polls. Uh, and those obviously got an awful lot of attention uh, for good and for bad through the course of uh, the year. Um, we do the exit polls. So we're doing polls on Election Day uh, and talking to people as they emerge from the polling place and asking them why they voted for whom, they, who they voted for and why. Um, the, uh, I will say this, though. In, uh, Jan in uh, February of this year, when I entered into our message feed to our clients, you know, Donald Trump wins the New Hampshire primary. His, that was his first win. It was pretty kind of amazing. You know, it was the kind of thing that you didn't think possible that, that uh, most people thought he would win New Hampshire by the time New Hampshire happened. But just the, a few months before that, mm -hmm. so many people thought that would be impossible. And the guy kind of kept doing the impossible all year long. And so it was so outside the norm. It was so different from what people expected that, um, you know, it was a year that will be talked about forever. I mean, they say that 
you know, people who study elections, you know, so many sentences are going to start with, well, until 2016, <laughs> dot, 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 because <laughs> so many norms were broken. So it was a crazy year. And obviously, there's uh, intense analysis of the polls from last year, both our polls and pre-election polls, in terms of what went right, what went wrong. I will mention real quick that one great thing about the polling industry is no one, no industries are more collegial, are trying to help each other learn best practices, how to get things right. Uh, you know, like everything to do with 2016, there were conspiracy theories galore. And I will tell you, because I know all these people, everyone was merely trying to get things right. You know, the, the belief that pollsters were putting out results to try to help or hurt a candidate is just ludicrous. They were doing their best to get things right. And it doesn't mean they're always right, but uh, it, it's it's a field that really wants to get things correct. Absolutely. Um, could you take us into election, um, into edit, into on the on the, the night of the election, and, and I guess for for Edison Research, the election begins hour many hours before election night. You guys are working hard that day. You're working hard in the days leading up to it to set up uh, all the precincts. Well, and everything. yeah, I would say we're working hard for years. Well, I'm sorry, yeah, years, the, for years. Uh, but but, but yeah, take us in. When did you know that that President Trump was was going to get elected? I assume it would be earlier than the rest of us. Oh yes, we had a very strong sense by noon. Uh, that it was going to be extremely close and that he had a very good chance to win. And, of course, no one else outside of our offices and the quarantine that we set up uh, would have known what a good chance he had. Um, so, yes, we're there. Um, polls open. The first polls open in America at 6 a.m., and we have people checking in at locations starting at 6 a.m., and we're checking the check-ins, if you will, to make sure that people are arriving at their appropriate places. So our day starts very, very early. Data starts to flow at around 10 o'clock in the morning, and we it it comes in in a stream, and you start to see the data in eastern states where the polls have opened earlier. Our interviewers are inter interviewing earlier, and you start to look at states. Uh, Pennsylvania was one of the um, significant ones that came in, and you were like, whoa, that's not what we expected. Even a state like Minnesota, our first report from Minnesota, Minnesota didn't get a lot of attention because... Uh, Hillary won as she was expected to in uh, Minnesota, but the first numbers came up. We, we, I think, had an estimate of Clinton by two or something like that in Minnesota. If she's winning Minnesota by two, or if this estimate's even close, she's in huge trouble in Wisconsin, Michigan, and and um, we knew she was already by that point and not going to win Ohio, mm -hmm. but then Pennsylvania, et cetera. And you started to do the math, and you were like, look, we have margin of error. This could be uh, incorrect, but we had a very strong sense by noon, uh, that um, it would be similar to what pollsters experienced in Britain for the Brexit vote the past June, mm -hmm. where what was expected going in and what might be happening were quite possibly different. And one of the one of the things that we've heard that might account for that gap is the difference between exit polls and polling before the election via phone or otherwise. Um, could you take us through maybe how those two are different in content and what they capture differently and why they might give us different answers? Well, sure. There's, there's a lot going on in that question. Uh, first of all, just why did the, the pre-election polls uh, indicate that uh, Clinton was going to win and then Trump won? Um, the uh, the the polling community uh, struggles to point out to people that the national surveys were actually pretty good. You know, the mm -hmm. average, if you look at Real Clear Politics or other averages, was about three point one percent for Clinton. She ended up winning by like two point one percent or something mm -hmm. like that, which is well within margin of error and a, a pretty good estimate. Of course, few people know nor nor understand nor care that 
that was actually a pretty good estimate. Their bottom line is you said a, you said Clinton was yeah. going to win and Trump won, and that's what matters. There was a lot more variance in certain state polls, especially in some of the states I was talking about, Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, Minnesota. Again, the polls were very wrong there, even though she did win. Uh, Wisconsin, um, even Ohio, uh, Iowa, others where people thought Trump would win, but he ended up winning by vastly more mm-hmm. uh, than the polls uh, predicted. I think there's any number. There's still a lot of research being done as to why that was the case. Um, the uh, and people putting that together. Probably the biggest factor, and was certainly a big factor with Brexit as well, is that just you know there's always this group of undecided. You know, people will say, well, it's you know, forty-five to Clinton, forty-three to Trump, and ten percent undecided or whatever, and or eight in that scenario, seven percent undecided, and. Uh, they, there's tons of evidence that the undecideds broke hard for Trump, mm-hmm. um, and you, that opens up all kinds of, you know, why did that happen? Where does the Comey letter fit in and all this kind of stuff? But it was a very close election. Very close elections are often decided at the end by people who can't decide Just until the last moment. Minute. You know, they walk in the literally last second sometimes. You know, they mm-hmm. walk in the booth, shrug their shoulders and, and press a button and um, – that seems the biggest thing is, you know, it's hard to pull right to the end and things were happening right to the end. Uh, and then not to over your answer your question, but you know, the other real unique factor about this election, truly unique, was the fact that you had two wildly unpopular candidates. Um, uh, you know, the it, back to my package goods example, you know, if um, Coke tasted like swill and Pepsi <laughs> tasted like poison, you would just not <laughs> not drink that stuff. But uh, here we have a huge number of people who did go out to vote despite disliking both candidates. And that just creates a certain level of volatility that is difficult for uh, pollsters to fully nail down. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to take you back briefly to 2004 and the 2004 election, oh which this is okay. this is kind of the last time uh, exit polls really came under fire. And Edison was was working on the exit polls. And. They gave uh, then Senator John Kerry a significant advantage, in some cases a five-point um, advantage, um, in an election that President Bush ended up uh, winning by by a, by a substantial margin. Um, why did that happen, and how has Edison learned from that? Well, yeah, the um, there's various polls from 2004. That was our first election that we uh, did. Uh, we had estimates that were. There's just a lot of challenges to doing exit polls, and it was, again, the first one we did, uh, first national exit poll that we did, and so we uh, had various things going on. Basically, over time, what has happened with exit polling, and we've gotten better as we've adjusted to this, is like any survey, there is a um, uh, the challenge of the people who choose not to take the survey. So a typical telephone poll these days is amazing because the response rate is like less, less than 10%, eight or 9% of people will respond to a telephone poll. It's amazing they're as accurate as they are, given the fact that so many people will refuse them. We do much better than that. We get about 50%, give or take, high 40s, 50% of people. But, and, but that means 50% of people, give or take, don't take the exit poll. And sometimes there is a, a bias, if you will, um, and bias is such a, a tricky word because it implies that we are uh, we are trying to accomplish something with it. There, but the research term would be a bias and who says yes and who says no to the exit poll. And we can look at someone as they um, emerge. And if they say no, we could say, oh, well, it's a male or female. We could say it's um, 
we can generally estimate their age group, three broad age groups, you know, 18 to 34, 35, 54, 55 plus. Uh, we can also identify as best as the interviewer can the racial uh, background of the, the person who refuses. And we can make adjustments for that. But the biggest challenge is that people don't walk out of the booth with like a big R or D stamped to their forehead. Mm -hmm. And what happened in 04 was we just had this differential non-response where Democrats were more likely to accept the survey, take the survey, and Republicans were less likely to take the survey. Um, if you really want to get into the weeds of it, uh, there were also multiple other challenges, like things people don't think about, like bad weather. There was actually particularly bad weather uh, in parts of the country in um, – in 2004. And so um, we often just lack data, which can lead to a higher variance in, in the outcome. Uh, you know, there was uh, uh, in parts of Ohio, which was the key state in 2004, uh, there was uh, almost tornado like rain. And so we had people getting, you know, leaving or just getting very, very few interviews on that day because we're often forced to be outside the polling place. Yeah. There's only so much you're going to do in a drive, even with an umbrella. There's only so much you can get done in a driving rainstorm. Um, so we had very, very small sample sizes in certain places. But the biggest thing is that it was a super close election. Um, you know, the uh, In that case, a single state, that wasn't the case in 16, but in, in uh, 2004, had a single state flipped, we would have had a different president. If Ohio had gone for Kerry instead of Bush, Kerry would have won. Uh, so, um, the, uh, you know, these are not expected to, you know, nail it down to the, to the most narrow, uh, but there's all kinds of conspiracy theorists out there mm -hmm. who believe, um, that, uh, you know, we're sort of part of the fix. And as I like to say, if, if we were, I wouldn't be here with you guys today. Mm -hmm. I'd be mm -hmm. on my pride. I, I would sell out democracy, but my <laughs> cost would be so high that, um, the uh, you know that I wouldn't be here with you guys today. I'd be living on my private island somewhere. So uh, the proof that I haven't uh, is the the mere fact that I'm still still working. Well, that's reassuring for everyone. I'm <laughs> yes, sure. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you since you started your company, you know, just over 20 years ago, uh, digital communication technologies and technology itself has just accelerated at a rapid rate. What has it been like? Um, kind of adjusting to that influx of new technology and just faster communication? And what does the future of market research look like today with internet ads and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, when I think about that, the the biggest change for us, well, it's certainly been methodological changes, but what comes to mind immediately is just productivity. The, the amount of work that a single person can get done nowadays is so, so much greater. I mean, I we run this one data set that we still do to this day. And my co-founder and I, when we started the company, we had a single computer that we shared. It was a different world. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that was pretty modern that we mm -hmm. even had that. And um, it was a, it was the state-of-the-art PC of 1994. And we would hit run on this data set and we'd go out to lunch because we were shut down for 90 wow. minutes. Now, running that data set takes about four seconds now. Uh, so as an example, I mean, you know, the... Um, uh, you know, we used to take hours to print things, you know, now we hardly ever print anything anymore. Mm -hmm. um, we, so there's massive, massive changes in productivity, uh, but we are uh, obviously adapting all manner of methodolo methodologies to deal with, you know, we've converted much of our telephone-based interviewing, obviously, to cell phones because mm -hmm. um, landlines are no longer sufficient to represent the U.S. population. 
we are involved with all manner of internet data collection, uh, using your phone to collect data in different ways. So it's it's been, to me, it's fun and exciting and scary and all those kinds of things because, you know, to, it's to witness all these changes. Um, but uh, I look mostly at just how much you can get done. I mean, you guys have... You have no idea how much time it, we used to waste doing things that take nothing. Now we aren't even done anymore. Um, you know, just pr like making a graph used to take a really long time. Mm -hmm. you know, and now it's like, you know, with PowerPoint or whatever, it takes two seconds. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So unfortunately, we have only time for one more question. And it's a question we like to ask all of our um, guests on our show. And, it, and the question is, what is your personal definition of success? And what advice would you give to students in defining success for themselves? Well, I'm a huge, uh, this is incredibly cliche, but I'm a huge believer in the sort of do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I mean, both my wife and I, I look, she's, there There can't be a doctor in America who loves being a doctor more than my wife does. There could be a tie, in fact, mm -hmm. likely is, but she just loves, <laughs> loves, loves being a doctor and, and dealing with her patients and making people better, et cetera. And I really love what I do. And I'm really, really lucky. Um, I found something that I was Good combination of what I was good at and understood, maybe had a natural affinity for, and um, you know I I don't wake up in the morning and go, gosh, you know I can't believe I have to uh, haul myself into work again today. Um, I I'm a huge believer that you know that money obviously you need money and but um, doing something you love is uh, has so much more value now obviously. We need people in this world to pick up the garbage and and uh, and you know do menial tasks that maybe can't provide much more than a job and maybe not so much joy, but if you have the privilege to do something that will bring you joy uh, for a living and you should understand what the privilege that is, um, I think people once they get to my age and and you know, nearing retirement and things like that are just much much happier than someone who made a lot of money but doing something they didn't like to do or of course making no money and doing something they didn't like to do. The best outcome is uh, I've been incredibly lucky to to have for myself. So that's, uh, like I said, it's utterly cliche, but it is how I feel. Right. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. So thank you, Larry, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.